The giant auk is sort of like a giant flightless puffin. It's a very large bird. It's up to three feet tall, black and white, uh, very dramatically colored with a white eye patch during during part of the year. Would molt and lose that later, but had that white eye patch during part of the year. But with these very little wings on this tall body and very robust, strong-looking creature, and this very powerful, stout hooked. Beak. In fact, some of the early names for it were spearfish. The Norse name for it was gyrfu, which means spearfish. Welcome to Making a Monster Extinction. This is the companion podcast to Book of Extinction, a monster manual of animals lost to the natural world but given a second life through Dungeons and Dragons. Natural history is already a part of the DNA of fantasy games. Many of our favorite monsters began as tall tales of exotic animals. Bringing extinct species into D&D is the best way tabletop gamers can honor their memory and move people toward action in the climate crisis and accelerating mass extinction. In this episode, we discover the great auk, the gerfowl, what the Inuit called Isarukitsak, and the New Englanders called the wobble and turn it into a D&D monster. If you want to follow along with this build, you can go to scintilla.studio extinction right now to download a digital preview of the book, which includes a stat block for the real great auk, as well as the magical version we'll be creating at the end of the show. Go ahead, I'll wait. Take your time. One note before we get started. I apologize in advance if I mispronounce any words in this episode, especially those from native languages. I have only seen them in print and not heard them spoken. If you have correct pronunciations or other resources that would help me as I try and get these right, please contact me using the link in the show notes to let me know. This episode has two guides to the natural world. The first is Stan Rachutin, Professor Emeritus of Biological Sciences at Mount Holyoke University, giving a tour of the Beneski Museum of Natural History. The second is new to the show. My name is Chiron Suckling, and I am the executive director and founder of the Center for Biological Diversity, which is an endangered species protection group that mostly works here in the U.S., but also internationally. And we try to save all species, great and small, from from butterflies and insects to polar bears and wolves, uh, keep them alive and to end the mass extinction crisis that's been sweeping over this planet for the last 500 years. And we do that primarily through litigation, uh, suing corporations that are killing endangered species, but very often suing state and federal governments, which are supposed to be enforcing laws to protect them, but often, often fail. So let's go back to a time before the 8th century, when the Great Auk had populations in the millions and was an important cultural and agricultural icon for native cultures in Newfoundland and Scandinavia. The giant Auk lived all around a lot of the Northern Hemisphere. When nesting in uh, Northwest Europe, they left in very large numbers. So there would be like thousands of them covering this rocky area together making a you know concoctious noise it did not fly because of its tiny wings but it was most at home in the water and um, 
It would swim very rapidly, very agile, and would catch fish with this powerful beak and, and consume them. The great auk was perhaps the greatest seabird in the ocean, and the worst bird anywhere else. They were flightless, they could run no faster than a human could walk, and they could hardly climb at all. The two months of the year great auk nesting pairs spent on land to raise that year's single chick made them incredibly vulnerable. The species survived by choosing nesting sites that were nearly impossible for anything but a great auk to reach. It was such a good swimmer that to get on land, it would, it would live in these areas where, um, you know, rocks would sort of drop straight into the water and, and getting up onto these rocks would not be necessarily an easy thing to do with wave splashing. But it could accelerate so fast through the water, it would just shoot out of the water and then land on, on the rocks. And so very, you know, dramatic, powerful animal. We don't uh, come across such large birds very often. And also birds are so, so robust, you know, you think of these delicate little birds and delicate little songs. And this was a very robust creature. But the intersection of that Venn diagram between habitable and inaccessible shrank as warming seas pushed the creature farther and farther north, and human seafaring techniques became more and more advanced. At first, the great auk could only be taken by the most committed hunters, like the native Beatuk people of Newfoundland. The Beatuk invented a special crescent-shaped canoe to hunt great auks on an island they called Apanath. That same island would be called Funk Island by the European sailors who reached it in the 1600s. Precisely because it lived in such remote areas, it did not encounter humans very often. It did not encounter mammalian predators very often. It, it, they would be preyed upon by, by polar bears. But, so for that reason, it was not afraid of humans. And, and this was ultimately its um, downfall because humans could approach them, capture them, kill them very easily despite how big they were because they just had no no fear of humans. In fact, there's descriptions that people would just pluck their feathers. They first were captured for feathers. Uh, a lot of birds were. The, the millinery business was huge at one point. So feathers were collected mostly for women's hats and imported to Europe, America as well. But they would just pull the feathers out of the bird um, without necessarily even killing it at first. And then it would uh, die from exposure without the protection of its of its feathers. Um, so it's quite remarkable. But sealers, people who hunted seals, found that these were easier to hunt than seals, bash them over the head, vast amounts of fat. You could render them very quickly and use the fat for all sorts of things and sell it. And so their populations crashed a lot. In 1794, a sailor on HMS Boston named Aaron Thomas described how this was done. If you come for their feathers, you do not give yourself the trouble of killing them, but lay hold of one and pluck the best of their feathers. You then turn the poor penguin adrift with his skin half-naked and torn off to perish at his leisure. This is not a very humane method, but it is the common practice. While you abide on this island, you are in the constant practice of horrid cruelties, for you not only skin them alive, but you burn them alive also to cook their bodies with. You take a kettle with you, into which you put a penguin or two, you kindle a fire under it, and this fire is absolutely made of the unfortunate penguins themselves. 
Their bodies being oily soon produce a flame. There is no wood on the island. Then, as they were getting very, very rare at the beginning of the 19th century, there was a, you know, in terms of people's fascination with natural history, a whole bunch of people all over Europe wanted to collect the eggs of every single European bird, and this was the rarest European bird. And so, eggers would go out to find giant auk eggs and sell them for a vast amount of money, and that put a lot of pressure on them. And then, in fact, there's a whole monograph, portraits of all the remaining great auk eggs. You know, their eggs about this big, and they have some brown, dark brown modeling on them. They lay one egg at a time, very large, brown mottled egg, um, and then fiercely defend that that egg. And you wouldn't necessarily want a beautiful hand hand colored book of, of pictures of each egg, but there is well, that book exists by Alfred Newton of Cambridge University. Um, Was that during the Victorian era? Yes, of course. The last nesting colony of great auks lived on an island off the coast of Iceland named Gerfuglaskar, or Gerfowl Rock. A five-acre islet at the end of a lava rock scary, Gerfuglaskar was protected by howling winds, rough seas, and inaccessible terrain, and seemed like it could be a permanent refuge for the auk. In 1830, it blew up. A volcanic eruption sank the island beneath the sea, causing the ox to move to nearby Eldi Island. On June 3, 1844, a four-man expedition visited Eldi Island to find the last living pair of ox for a foreign merchant. One of them refused to make the landing in what he called Satan's weather, so three fishermen, John Branson, Sigurdur Esleifsson, and Kettle Kettleson, entered the island caught and killed the last two great ox, and smashed their egg. We have Sigurder's first-hand account, given to great ox specialist John Wally some years later. They walked slowly. John Branson crept up with his arms open. The bird that John got went into a corner, but mine was going to the edge of a cliff. I caught it close to the edge, a precipice many fathoms deep. Its wings lay close to the sides, not hanging out. I took him by the neck, and he flapped his wings. He made no cry. I strangled him. And that was the end of the great dog. Usually, at this point in the story, people get real quiet. Of all the extinction stories I've heard and told over the course of this project so far, this one makes people the most genuinely angry. And you're right to feel that way. I've given talks before where I put up the pictures of an extinct species and start telling their stories, and people walk out of the room. And I finally realized I can't just lead with that or be like, okay, here's all the gloomy extinction statistics. I have to be like, and here's what we can do about it. And so for me, action is the antidote to despair. That's Tierra Curry, senior scientist at the Center for Biological Diversity. I talk to people about extinction every day. (laughs) And I take a lot of hope from the things that people are doing. I mean, the Dungeons and Dragons community is exploring extinction now. I talk to 
elementary school students who are doing projects on climate change or people contact me asking for how to build a pollinator garden in their community. There's so many good people out there doing so many creative things. And because I do extinction outreach, I get to talk to people every day who are doing something like from having bake sales to writing songs, to writing poetry, to painting murals, whatever it is, people care and people are doing stuff. And that, that gives me a lot of hope. Here are two ways you can take action in the climate crisis. First, donate to conservation through Book of Extinction. Go to scintilla.studio slash extinction or follow the link in the show notes to download the preview of Book of Extinction. You can pay what you want for it, and whatever you pay will be donated to conservation efforts to preserve endangered species, habitat, and biodiversity. I'm currently meeting with conservation organizations to select a project and organize a grant. And you can follow this podcast or join my email list to get the details as they are finalized. I am uh, so excited about this. You really don't know how excited I am about it because it's like it's a whole community that is passionate and driven and probably like resourceful and willing to dive into details on stuff. And I can just see this community running with this and being like, we're going to end extinction. Like that could be the tipping point. The D&D community can be like, I hope so. Extinction ends here. (laughs) (laughs) Second, share these stories with the people you play games with. Just telling people these animals existed and what they represent begins to reverse the sliding scale of decreasing biodiversity by helping people realize what we've already lost. It matters how we portray these stories. The choices we make in art can persist for decades or centuries to come. There was one great auk that was a pet of the (laughs) king of Denmark, and he made a little sort of pearl leash for it. And he walked around with his auk on a leash. And a portrait was painted of it. And then other people, as auks got, as the great auk got rarer and rarer, would use that portrait and copy it. So many of the portraits of the wild great auk have a white ring around its neck, which was actually a necklace <laughs> that was put around the pet auk's neck. Actually, well, let's say one more thing about the great auk was interesting. So its genus name is Penguinus. And it was found by Europeans, of course, much earlier by uh, indigenous people, but, but it was found by Europeans much sooner than penguins were ever discovered because they occur in Northwest Europe as, as well as um, Northwest uh, uh, North America. And it's, you know why we had this old Norse name for it. But so it was the original penguin. Uh, penguins were not yet known. So when penguins were later discovered by Europeans, they said, oh, well, this is a very similar bird. And so we're going to call these ones penguins as well. You tend to think the penguin would have the first name penguin and it would go the other way, but it went the other direction. And it wasn't until much later, uh, actually Carl Linnaeus in, in developing the original taxonomy system separated them them out. With all these birds, these very interesting stories of the names, which, which goes back to the whole question of, of hybrids and monsters, because they all start blending into one another. There's not one of them that has some singular story of being what it is. It's always, well, we thought it was that, and it was related to this, and then its name changed, and then someone heard the name differently, and with every one of them. And so consequently, they're all hybrid mythological beings tied to other other creatures. So let's start with the great auk 
and let's make a monster. We'll call it the Ocean Master, the undisputed king of the seas. For this creature to maintain its inaccessible habitat in a world of magic where wizards can fly, it has to have magic of its own, which means it cannot remain a beast. Dungeons & Dragons classifies monsters into 14 distinct types. I hope Linnaeus shows us how influential such a system of classification can be on our discourse, but that's a podcast for another time. It's enough for now to say that creatures with the beast type interact with the world in strictly physical ways. No D&D beast has the ability to cast spells. So the Ocean Master gets upgraded to a Celestial. There's a suite of spells in Dungeons & Dragons that change the very terrain you pass through, perfect for the Ocean Master. But which ones to pick? In my experience, terrain spells can take up to twice as long to resolve as other spells, so we'll limit the kit by setting the monster's challenge rating at 3. This trims out some of the higher level spells, like Reverse Gravity. We can also remove a few that don't match the Great Auk's original story. Plant growth isn't the best choice for a bird that spent 10 months out of the year floating in the ocean. In the final render, we have a small creature with a fearsome beak attack and innate spellcasting. Fog Cloud, Ray of Frost, Spike Growth, Call Lightning, Control Water, Ice Storm, and Wall of Stone. With the Ocean Master in your campaign, you can replicate at your table the experience of navigating through treacherous Icelandic seas. What does it look like to sail those waters? What merchants offer would make it worth the danger? And what would have happened to the Great Auk if it had been able to control its habitat instead of the other way around? Special thanks this episode to Fred Venna and the Bineski Museum of Natural History at Amherst College for contributing the recording of Professor Ricciuti's tour. Thanks also to Karan Suckling and Tiara Curry at the Center for Biological Diversity. And thank you for listening to Making a Monster Extinction. If bringing D&D to conservation matters to you, please visit scintilla.studio extinction to download the Book of Extinction preview. You can pay what you think it's worth, or you can just have it, but whatever you pay through that page will be donated to conservation efforts to preserve endangered species, habitat, and biodiversity. If you really like what I'm doing with this podcast, consider supporting the show on Patreon. Patrons of Making a Monster get access to a ton of extras, including music, cut tape, bonus episodes, and a master list of all the stat blocks and discounts past guests have given to listeners of the show. I'll see you next week with a brand new monster.